The last time I was here was just before our team left on what was supposed to be just a short eight, nine-day trip to the country of Niger. It ended up getting a, a, we got a special extra few days on the trip. I appreciate all the prayers that you all lifted, many of you coming uh, for that week uh, until we lifted off and, and, and left the country of Niger. Um, and and I, while we were there that last week when the coup happened and we ended up uh, staying in the country for a few extra days, the students and I uh, spent some time in Philippians and we started looking through the book of Philippians. We made it through the first chapter of Philippians. And so I thought it was, uh, it was apropos that we be in Philippians today. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And I want to read verses 12 through 14 first and then talk a little bit, if you'll permit me, to, about our time in Niger and what we saw there. But it, I think that it's, it's appropriate to read these first three verses because they really summarize what I feel like God used our time there in Niger to do here and abroad. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I don't think that what our time in Niger was an imprisonment. We didn't feel in prison. Now, we were within the walls, I guess, of a compound where we stayed most of the time. But even in that, we were able to get outside of the compound walls and go out in the streets. It was normal business. People were walking the streets and carrying on as they would normally. It just happened to be that two, three hundred yards away at the Imperial Palace, things weren't so normal business. But nobody foresaw that coming. But here's what happened with the students that we were with. As we dug into Philippians, as we dug into their relationship with Christ, I got to see them bloom, for them to be able to say things now. Like after our airplane got, uh, got canceled for the, the second time, I don't remember thinking about getting out of Niger. All I thought about was the people who are here, 98% of whom have never heard the gospel. What's going to happen to them when we leave? And even when the Italian embassy got us on a plane and we were able to leave as we drove through the streets, your students, your high school students, weren't thinking about, I'm so glad to get out of this country, I was so scared. That never crossed their mind. What they were thinking about is, what happens now to the 98% of the people in these streets who have no access to the gospel? That's what these high school students were thinking. With wise thoughts beyond their years, they were thinking of someone outside of themselves, not thinking about, I want to go. Most of them are thinking, when can I go back? Every one of them that I've talked to has said, when can we go back? There are people that need to hear. This is what the high school students and myself are thinking as they think about Niger, as they look at the news and they see the thing that, that has gone. And so our imprisonment, our time in Niger that we were there, and I, I struggle to say, it's, it's easy to say stuck there, but I know that it wasn't a coup or a military or a closed airport that kept us in Niger. It was God. And what has happened to us has really served to advance the gospel. If you were in America, here in Texas, you know that the news went far and wide what happened 
and the hope that our students have gotten to share in their schools where Jesus is not always so welcome and gotten to share about the hope that is theirs in Christ has been exponentially worth it. And so they're able to do that without fear. We got to see that. And as we got on the bus, actually, as we were dropped off at the Italian uh, military air base there in Niger, which I didn't know was a thing, but it was there, and we drove in, the head of the military police for the Italian embassy said to us, what are you doing here? <laughs> there are 12, nine students, three adults, Tracy Hall and Dylan Sandlin and I, what are you doing here? And we said, well, we're here on a missionary trip. We've been doing some vacation Bible schools, some soccer clinics, getting to share the gospel with people. And he said, this is a quote from him. He said, there are many places you can go on a mission trip. Next time, not Niger. <laughs> and I said, I appreciate that sentiment, sir, but for all intents and purposes, that's an, uh, that is an advice, some advice that we hope to ignore. We hope to go back because there are people that need to hear. So that's what I want to look at today as we jump to our main text, and you saw it in the video there, Philippians 1, 19 through 30. Let's read that together, starting in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with, all, with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of what you are that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Do you hear a juxtaposition in those two verses, two things that don't seem to go together but somehow do? Paul's saying uh, there's a theme there of, in verse 19, I know this will work out for my deliverance. In verse 20, he says that there will be honor that comes from this. In verse 22, he says there will be fruitfulness of labor. In verse 28, he says strong and without fear. But in all of that, he says all of these things can come by my life or by my death. Now, there is a certain amount of deliverance in death. You're delivered from your physical body. You're delivered from a sin-stained world, a broken world. But it, that's not the kind of deliverance we are hoping for today. I hope uh, we're, not, we're not masochists. We're not martyrs. We don't want to go outside and, and, and die today. We're not looking forward to that. We wouldn't, we're not considering that deliverance. But when Paul says deliverance, he says it can happen whether I'm here and alive and in the world or it can happen with my death. 
Either way, it's 50-50. And he actually even goes so far as to say, I don't know which one I would choose. I might choose life, I might choose death. Who knows? I'm hard-pressed between the the two. But here's the thing. I don't see, when I think of fruitfulness and honor and and strength and no fear, I'm not thinking of death. That doesn't seem to make sense. So what's Paul saying? Well, I think we find that in verse 20. He doesn't say, I can be honored in my, I will be honored in my body. And verse 20 says, the one honored in my body is Christ. And so the one delivered is Christ. The one who is strong without fear is Christ. And so in verse 22, it makes a little more sense when Paul says, which I'm going to choose, I can't tell. Because it's far better to be with Christ. But we're, we're choosing, Paul chooses to be with the people. He says, I, I know I'm going to choose to stay. For whose purpose? For your purpose, not mine. For Christ's purpose, not mine. And so we're not masochists. We don't have a martyr's complex. Paul didn't either. He wasn't, he wasn't asking for death. He didn't want to be killed for his faith. But as I was studying this and I was looking at a myriad of missionaries who have gone before us, who have been martyred, who are, we don't have to look far, even back modern days. There's, there's a, a missionary couple, John and Betty Stam. You may not have heard of them. They served in northern China. And they were faced with a, a Presbyterian missionary who had just been taken as the Communist Party, uh, what would become the Communist Party, stormed through China and was taking over cities. They were taking hostages. They were killing them in the streets. A, a Presbyterian missionary was killed. He wrote a, a poem, which I will recommend to you, called Afraid of What? And he read this, and he sent this letter to his dad. And he said, and so we can praise God that for us, everything is well. If we should go on before, it's only quicker to enjoy the bliss of the Savior's presence, the sooner to be released from the fight against sin and Satan. Meanwhile, we can continue to praise him from whom all blessings flow. Whether we live or whether we die, Christ is honored. In my life or in my death, I will be delivered from a world that is marred by brokenness. It wasn't long after writing this letter that John and Betty Stam were taken themselves by the communists. And they were marched to another city two or three hours away. They were taken to the open uh, forum in the middle of the city of the people who they had come to reach, and they were killed in front of them all. A people who had been hard-hearted to the gospel, and a couple of local believers who were there recorded the fact that as the people who had been hard-hearted to the gospel watched John and Betty Stam die, tears flowed. They saw that the belief of John and Betty Stam was worth giving everything for. And though John and Betty Stam weren't hoping for death, they didn't want to be martyrs, they were willing to be martyrs. And so there is a difference in not having a martyr's complex and in clinging so tightly to our life that we are unwilling to join our Savior in taking up our own cross on proverbial or literal Calvary Road and following him and giving our lives either in labor or our actual physical lives for the sake of his kingdom and not our own. And when John's father Peter heard the news from the mission sending agency that his son and his daughter-in-law had been killed. This is the telegram that he sent back. 
Deeply appreciate your consolation. Sacrifice seems great, but not too great for him who gave himself for us. Experiencing God's grace and believing wholeheartedly, Romans 8.28. And then Peter Stam wrote to his friends to tell them of his son and daughter-in-law's death. And he said, our dear children, John C. Stam and Elizabeth Scott Stam, have gone to be with the Lord. They loved him, they served him, and now they are with him. What could be more glorious? What could be more glorious, he was able to say, about his son's death? Because his son's death paid a ransom that Jesus had already paid and told the people of what Jesus had done that they didn't know. And so Paul is able to say, life or death, I don't know which one I'll choose. He's not being real. He's being facetious there, but he's also pointing to the fact that our life or our death are not our own to choose. And the cool thing about what I said about Niger, we, wrote, we read Philippians. The main uh, course or path that made sense out of Niger was France, who they were wanting out and want out, or America would get us out. But what God chose was Italy. We went to Rome. We saw the Colosseum and the Roman Forum, and then we ended our time by going to the very jail cell where Paul wrote Philippians. God ordained in our time together that we studied Philippians and we saw the whole where Paul wrote Philippians, where he writes, my, left, my life or my death, I don't know what I'm going to choose, but I know that God's going to be delivered. Christ's message is going to be delivered. Paul knew better than anybody that he had no control over his life. He was in a cell, and unless somebody let him out, he was going to die there and did die there. But Christ was honored in Paul's body. I hope that he's honored in our bodies. Paul was no, no stranger to suffering and risk. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives a list of all the peril that he went through. In peril for speaking the gospel, in peril for taking the gospel to new areas, shipwrecked three times, hated by the Jews, hated by the Gentiles. Have you ever felt like the whole world was against you? Paul knew what it was to have the whole world against you. He was hated by his own people and he was hated by all the other people too. He couldn't catch a break. He was in danger in the city. He was in danger in the wilderness. He couldn't find a safe place to go. But he wasn't complaining about this th these things. He was saying that in all of these things, Christ is glorified. And so we think a lot of times, I think that we, th we look for where safety is. Where is safety for me? Where is safety for my children? But Paul knew a, 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 an important truth. Safety is a mirage. And it's a mirage that the evil one uses to help uh, to keep us from living the life that God intended or dying the death that God intended. We engage in tasks every day and we accept risk. And so you see there in your outline, risk exists because of ignorance. If we knew the future, there would be no risk when we made a decision. If we knew the outcome of every decision that we would make, there would be no risk. But every day, and you this morning, have gotten in your car and you've driven here, and you think, because I'm a good driver, everybody thinks they're a good driver, I doubt that all of you are good drivers. But we'll say that you are. You still have no ability to keep the car coming towards you from swerving into your lane, hitting you head on, and you die. 
You'll go out, many of you, after you leave this place and you'll eat at a restaurant and you may have eaten there 20 times, but who knows if that food that you eat today is cooked properly, if it has a deadly bacteria, if you're sitting too close to the table and there's a new pandemic and you die from, you can't know that. When I was in China in 2019, my wife Natalie and I and our two girls thought we had time left in China. We didn't know that a pandemic was coming that would cause us to leave the country. We didn't know that as we were out of the country that a, that a security leak would cause us to be known by the Chinese government as missionaries and that we wouldn't be allowed back into the country. We had no way of knowing or we wouldn't have left. You can't know that you will live to the end of this sermon. Pastor John knows this. He's preached a sermon where a man died right there, not because of his preaching. <laughs> we know that that would not be the case. He's a great preacher, but died in the sermon. And you definitely can't know that you will live to the end of today. We know these things in our mind. We don't know them in our hearts. But Paul knew it. But here's the gracious truth. If risk exists because ignorance of the future, then God cannot take a risk. He knew your future from the day before he created the world. He knew the end of your days. He knows the hairs on the top of your head, which every day are getting less for me, so it's a little easier for him. He knows every consequence of every decision you will make. We serve a God who takes no risks. And so when we were in Niger, despite what uh, parents of the students may have thought, it may have felt different, or what you may have thought, thought when you watched the news, we were never more in danger than a sovereign God allowed. And you who stayed in America, you were never more safe than a sovereign God allowed. Because here's the truth, it's not your location or your circumstance that determines your security. It is the sovereign God who ordered the cosmos and knit you together in your mother's womb, who ordains your every step. And so with that truth, we can be free to take every risk because we serve a God who knows no risk, because he ordains everything that happens. And so our bodies, our deliverance, our safety, our very lives are for his glory and for his kingdom. And that's why in verse 27, Paul can give us marching orders. These are marching orders. They're not marching suggestions. They're not marching best practices. They're marching orders. And this is what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only. The only thing that matters. The most important truth. Live a life that is worthy of of the gospel. So worthy of what? Worthy of the gospel. D.A. Carson says this, and you'll see it in your outline there, a quote from D.A. Carson, Carson, conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. And everything we do, and Paul said in my life or in my death, the gospel is what is central, not my safety, not my deliverance, not my strength or my lack of fear, but God's kingdom. And so conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. I think that matches up 
with what Paul says in the end of verse 27, where we get our final marching orders, so that, this is why we live conduct worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent or I die in prison, which Paul did, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there's two parts there that I want to look at. First, he says, I want to hear two things, that you're standing firm in the Spirit. Not standing firm in your abilities, in your talents, and how smart you are, or what school you went to. Standing firm in the Spirit, the one who gives the success to the work. So he's about to tell us what the work is, but the first thing he says is, stand firm in the Spirit. He doesn't want you to stand firm in anything else. There is no other standing firm. We stand firm on the Spirit of God who lives in all of us and lives in every believer. And stand firm for what purpose? To strive side by side. When I think of that and you hear those words, striving side by side, the Jewish people may have seen the Roman army striving side by side, marching forward to grow the Roman Empire. And I think that's exactly the picture that Paul is trying to give us. Striving side by side in the Lord's army. There's the old song, I'm in the Lord's army, right? And we sing that and we, we see this idea of the army marching forward, proclaiming and taking new land for the kingdom. But that word, striving side by side, there's one Greek word that is translated there as striving side by side. The word is sunathleo. And it's only used one other time in the New Testament. Sunathleo. It's used here, and it's also used another time in Philippians. In Philippians 4.3. But there it's translated not as striving side by side, but laboring side by side. Which I thought was cool because one of our values and the, the theme of our month is laboring in the harvest. So to labor and to strive, very similar meaning. So you can see how they got there. It's, it's used in Philippians 4.3 in reference to two women, Euodia and Syntyche, two women that, Gaul, that Paul says labored with him side by side in the gospel. And so both times that it's used in the entire New Testament, one time it is striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and in Philippians 4.3 it's used uh, laboring side by side for the gospel. All of our labor, all of our striving, everything that we do, regardless of whether you're a pastor or whether you're a teacher or whether you are a news reporter or whether you are a garbage man, whatever job you do, you are pointing to Christ with your life or with your death. In everything that we do, we are striving side by side, laboring next to each other, laboring not just with laborers here at Harmony Hill, but with people like Maliki in Niger that we got to work with and do soccer clinics and work in the villages. With people like Priscilla and Aquila, who we call uh, not the Priscilla and Aquila of Acts, but we work next to in Southeast Asia. Co-laborers in Christ, laboring with local believers in other countries to bring the gospel to bear. And so there's no difference between those two verses. And so if our purpose as co-laborers for Christ, in joining in this task that Paul and namely God is giving us, how are we doing? 
And you see on the banners on either side, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who can separate us from Christ? How are we doing in this gospel proclamation task as the church? Well, you may know there are eight plus billion people in the world today, ever growing. Of those eight billion, over three billion people have no access to the gospel. 3.4 billion. If you're doing math, I'm not very good at math, that's 40% of the world that has little to no access to the gospel. We just sang a song, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. But 40% of the world can't sing that song because they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know that there's a way to live and to die. They can't live in a manner worthy of the gospel because they don't have the gospel. You can see, and I, I would encourage you to, to look at these walls at, at some of the the references that we have here, 7,000 languages in the world, only 724 with a full Bible in their language. They may have the New Testament, they may have one book of the Bible, but only 724 have the full Bible in their language. How will they know if we don't tell them? How will they know if we don't translate the Bible? And so you see these, uh, these quotes and the one that I was thinking of when we were talking about the glory of God and him coming back is this quote by Oswald Smith. We talk about the second coming. Half of the world has never heard of the first. They don't know that there's a Jesus, that there's a Savior who can pay the penalty for their death, for their sin. And so I would point you to the map outside in the, in the, hall, in the, the lobby, to the TV where you can actually, it's a touch screen and you can Kick, click on any country in the world, it'll tell you the percentage of believers there. You can see it by the color, red meaning not reached, green meaning more reached. There's a difference, and we've said this before, but it's worth saying again, there's a difference between lost and unreached. You don't know personally any unreached person. And how do I know that? They're not unreached because they know you. The only possible way that they could be unreached is if you're disobedient if you're not telling them the gospel. When we say unreached, we're talking about countries like the placards that you'll see throughout the hall, none of which of those people groups or places are more than 90% reached, un unreached. At least 90% of all the people that you will see out there have never heard the gospel. In most cases, it's 98, 99, some of them are 99.9% .9 unreached. They will be born they will live and they will die. And unless something changes, they will enter into a Christless eternity. They need to hear so that they can join us in heaven singing the songs, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. They need to know that name. And so in verse 24, Paul says, it's necessary for me to remain on your account. I wanna be with Jesus. I do too but it's necessary for me to remain. In verse 25, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith, it's necessary for me to remain. And in verse 26, he says, so that in me you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. I hope that's something that I can say about my life. Do the people who I come in contact with have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus? Do the 3.4 billion souls who are still unreached 
have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus? Right now, they don't. Not because they don't want to. Some of them do. And when they hear the gospel, they will eagerly say, I want that. So we love the glory of God. I love to sing worship songs about God's glory, about having his glory rain down on us, about beholding his glory. But meanwhile, 40% of the world doesn't know that he's glorious. And so you see there in your outline, our claim that we champion the glory of God has a disconnect. It is a global glory or it's no glory at all. It has to be a global glory or it's not glorious. God demands that we bring his glory, that we make his glory known in the whole world because he is worthy of the worship of all of those 3.4 billion souls who have never heard. And that's why in verse 27, Paul's meaning here is probably the main point of the entire letter of Philippians. Stand firm in the Spirit's guidance. I'm paraphrasing here, but you can look at it. Stand firm in the Spirit's guidance and strive or labor forward for the sake of the gospel, building his kingdom. Because here's the truth that you can see in verse 28. We're not frightened in anything by our opponents. The gospel has many opponents. Governments, um, organizations, people that promote death, but not for the death of the, of the cross, but death of, of the unborn. But here's the truth of our church, of what Harmony Hill will stand on and what Paul says here. We choose faith in a sovereign God, not fear of a defeated adversary. All of our opponents have been defeated. They were defeated on the cross long before our time. And so risk is a defeated adversary. Disease and death is a defeated adversary. Sin is a defeated adversary. And so we choose faith in a sovereign God who creates and controls everything, not fear of a defeated adversary. And then in verse 29, we see, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And there's a, there's a quote that I think is going to be up here on the screen about persecution. And I read this as I was reading a commentary. It says this, Persecution is a parable that puts the death and resurrection of Christ on display again and again. Persecutors try to kill the faith of believers like they tried to kill Jesus. But faith refuses to die. Resurrection power is on display. Opponents should fear because they actually are fighting God and they will lose. I heard a story recently, and actually my friend that shared this story is in Nepal right now on a trip, and he's shared they've had over 80 professions of faith in a week. And this is the story he told me about his friend, a friend named Joseph. Joseph is a believer who comes to Nepal to help them translate. He lives in northern India. And if you've watched the news, if you know anything about northern India right now, it is a place of heavy persecution. People are being dragged out into the streets, their homes burned, their families killed, only because they are Christians. So one day Joseph was in a park. He was in a town that is known for being one of the hearts of the persecution right now. He was sitting in a park and he had a notebook and inside the notebook he had his Bible. He was trying to shield a little bit from unnecessary persecution. He was reading his Bible. And a man came up to Joseph and he sat down next to him on the bench, and he said, what are you reading? And Joseph said, okay, this is a moment 
Am I willing to risk this? This could be a trap. He could take me and kill me right now, and no one would stop him. And he said, I'm learning about God. Would you like to learn about God too? And the man said, actually, I was standing over there, and I felt God tell me, come and sit next to you and ask you what you're reading. And so Joseph said, well, I'd be happy to tell you what I'm reading. He says, not here. Come back to my house because I'd like my family to hear it as well. And so they go back to his house, and he gathers his family, his whole family together, and Joseph shares the gospel, and the family believes. And Joseph says to the new man, this new believer in Christ and his family, do you know people that need to hear this message too? And, and the man says, yes, I do. I know. I can think of 10 people right now. And Joseph said, I'll come back in a few days. And the man said, no, 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 stay here. I'll go get them. We'll go to them. We'll share the gospel. So they go from house to house. The first couple of houses, Joseph shares the gospel. After a couple of houses, this new believer says, I think I've got it now. I can do it. So he starts sharing the gospel. And in every home, over the next week, they see over 100 people give their lives to Christ for the first time. Persecution is a parable of Jesus' life and death. The persecutors think they're stamping out the faith of the gospel. They're not stamping out the faith of the gospel. They are spreading it like a wildfire. Two weeks later, Joseph went back to that same town, this time to train over 100 new believers what does it look like to start a church now? So they started 10 new churches. While he's training them, he gets a phone call. You thought the story was over. It's not over yet. It's still not over because it's still going. He's still alive. But he gets a call while he's training, and they say, is this Joseph? He says, yes. They say, I hear that you can tell me about Jesus. And Joseph says, again, thinking this could be a trap. Is it a risk I'm willing to take? He says, where did you get my number? And the man says, last night I had a dream. And in the dream, the man told me that your name was Joseph and he gave me your number and he said, you could come and tell us about Jesus. Will you come to our town and tell us about Jesus? Now that's the end of the story that I know. I haven't heard the end of that story, but I know that Joseph went and he was gonna share Jesus. And I know how Jesus works, that when the gospel is proclaimed and people are prepared by the heart of God, that they come to faith, and so I can only imagine what is happening, all because Joseph was willing to risk his life, even his actual physical death, because there is a Savior outside of himself, and there are 3.4 billion people who have never heard the gospel, and Joseph counted it worth the time to go. This is who we are as a church. This is who we are at Harmony Hill when we engage the lost with the gospel, we are engaging in the same conflict as Paul. Paul knew his conflict was going to end one day, but the conflict wasn't over. When we share the gospel, whether it's with our coworker or a neighbor or across the world in Nepal or in India or in Niger or in Southeast Asia, we are engaging in a conflict against a real adversary. But the reality is that adversary is already dead. He's already defeated. Risk is defeated. We don't have to be afraid. And so this is who we are as Harmony Hill. We want to see people awaken from life to death in Christ. He's the only one that can do it. We hear the command of Scripture and we look to the Word. It's time in the Word. We invest the principles and commands of Scripture into the next generation, the next disciple of Christ as we mentor. Christ catalyzes us to go. And we stand together in the faith, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel.